0: Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Welcome in on a Thursday morning. Yuck! Today's the day, isn't it? Joe Ingles today? Yeah, it's a Joe Ingles show. Stay tuned. We'll get the uh, time for him, and I will uh, tweet that out. He usually likes to come on between like 8.30 and 8.45. So uh, look forward to that later this morning. He also doesn't like to come on on game days, so it won't. I don't think it'll be Friday this week. With an afternoon game, I would be stunned. So, all right, we've got some uh, football for you this morning. We've got some college football. We've got some pro football. we got some Utah Jazz. we got a little mix here to get things going. Uh, we're going to start with the guy who looks like he's going to be the starting quarterback at the University of Utah, Charlie Brewer, coming in. Now, kind of off a particularly good year last year, uh, but two years ago, 21 touchdowns, only seven picks, threw for a bunch of yards, and Baylor went to the Sugar Bowl. Then they had a coaching change. Then they had COVID issues, and it all went horribly wrong. They went two and seven, and he decided to transfer. And uh, as you'll hear him say here, Utah is on his radar because Utah's been good. You know, it's, it's one thing to win. You always want to win, obviously. Uh, but then can you build off that success? And he was recounting a couple years ago how he has his eye on Utah because they were both climbing and looked like they could be competing for the last spot in the college football playoff. Now, ultimately, they both got beat and neither one made it. Uh, but nonetheless, it put Utah on his radar. So here is Charlie Brewer, and this guy is... His, uh, football royalty coming out of Texas. He was a star quarterback at Baylor. His dad quarterbacked the Texas Longhorns. So uh, football and quarterbacking run in the family. Here, here's Charlie Burr with the media on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.
1: Good morning, Charlie. Good morning.
2: Um, We've heard glowing reports from your coaches and teammates uh, about your assimilation into the program this spring. I'd be curious some self-evaluation here and how you feel you've made the transition and a month in with the spring game Saturday, how it's all gone for you. I
1: I think it's been, you know, a lot of people around me, um, coaches, teammates have made it a really, really smooth transition for me. Um, You know, I think collectively as a group, I think you know, especially on offense, we've uh, gotten better each practice, which is, uh, you know, kind of what you hope for, um, just to, you know, improve every day. And, you know, I think we've done that as a, as a whole. And, you know, like I said, for me personally, I, I feel like it's been a smooth transition where it's allowed me to just go out and play. Stylistically, do you still feel like you fit well in Andy's offense? Absolutely. I think, you know, he. a lot of the stuff we've been doing this spring has been, been really good stuff. And, you know, it's, you know, we've made a lot of explosive plays and stuff like that. So it's been great so far.
3: Next question will come from Trevor Allen with KSL Sports, followed by Josh Furlong with KSL.com.
0: Charlie, I know that one of the the big things whenever you're you're making a move, especially after a few years at Baylor, is getting is getting that that chemistry with your wideouts. How how has that been throughout spring ball? Getting used to guys like Britton Covey, Solomon Enos, Devon Vele, and others.
1: It's been good, you know. I think it, it's improved, you know, day by day, day by day, week by week. Um, you know, on our own, we we would throw. Um, during the winter conditioning in the off season. So got a head start there, but, um, you know, throughout spring, I think it's improved every day. So it's been really good. Those guys have made a lot of plays. And in the follow up, I know that the old line is another thing
0: that is, is, is a big change for you. How, how have they been uh, doing during,
1: during spring ball? And, and do you feel like that this is a very good group? Yeah, I think it's a great group. I think, um, you know, those guys have played really well spring, gotten better each practice, and, um, you know, led by Nick. I think, you know, those guys, you know, play really hard and um, a great unit.
3: Next question will come from Josh Furlong, followed by Sammy Mora. Yeah, Nick came in here just a little bit ago and said that uh, one of the reasons he came back was this team feels kind of similar to that 2018 team, which was one that uh, obviously, you know, was contending for the playoffs. You know, I'm, I'm sure when you were at Baylor, you guys were looking at Utah a little bit, knowing that you guys were in a very similar situation and you were able to do, you know, well there. What, what can you kind of... Um, get from that season specifically since 2019 was cut short with COVID and everything, but what can you get from that? And how do you feel like you can kind of assimilate back to the 2018 season for you and Utah?
1: Yeah, I I do remember, um, I think Utah was like five, we were six or something like that. Um, But I, you know, I think just a season where you have a lot of success, um, you know, a lot of things go into that. You know, you got you to play well week to week. You can't you can't slip up, um, you know. And I think when you have an older group of guys that have played a lot of football, that, that makes it easier. It makes it easier to, you know, make sure that doesn't happen. Um, so I think, you know, I think we got the guys to do it. Um, you know, it's just now it's just about the little things that go into it, and I definitely see, you know, the potential.
3: Next question is from Sammy Mora. Hey Charlie, um, I was just
1: curious where, like, what you see in this Utah program um, comparison to the Sugar Bowl team that you were a part of at Baylor. You no, know, I, I mean, every place is has its own ways a little bit. It's each place is you know different, um, but I, but there are you know a lot of similarities. I feel. Um, not completely the same, but I, I see a lot of similarities. You know, there's, you know, a lot of talent on this team. Um, I will say that there's a ton of talent on, on this team. And, um, you know, I always said that uh, Coach Whittingham has his similarities to Coach Rule. Um, so I guess that's a similarity in that way.
3: Next question, I'll go to Josh Furlong, followed by Bill Riley. Charlie, Kyle hasn't been shy about, you know, praising you in this spring and and kind of talking about your talent. Uh, Obviously, you know, in fall, you'll be able to compete, you know, a little bit more in a serious nature in the sense that you guys will have an actual starter named with maybe Cam rising now in the mix. How do you feel like, you know, you can still keep that competitive edge while knowing that Cam was named the starter last year and, and is now, you know, in essence, essentially that guy until you can kind of beat him out. What what do you feel like that relationship can be like? And how do you feel like you can, you can balance that? I mean, I,
1: I think, you know, competition is great. I think it's, you know, the making of a a great football team. Um, The more competition you have, um, I think the better. So, you know, I think, you know, Cam's a great guy. Um, We get along very well off the field um, so I think the balance is already there of you know competition and when to not comp- when to not co- compete and stuff like that. So you know I think you know I understand the situation. He understands the situation and you know and it's just you know competition.
3: Final question for Charlie will come from Bill Riley.
1: Charlie, I talked to a
2: number of people that, that were around you at Baylor and around, around you in the Big 12, too, and everybody talked about a different trait you as quarterback. But I think the common denominator with everybody was your competitive streak. Everybody talked about your competitive streak. I'd just be curious, wh- where did that, you know, refuse to lose kind of competitive streak everybody talks about come from?
1: Um,. That's a good question. Um, I just, I think just growing up, I loved competing in sports, you know, from a young age, whether it's, you know, watching my older brother, or, you know, something like that. I just always enjoyed competing. And, you know, I guess it, once I got in high school, I felt, you know, I was under-recruited and then, um, then it kind of, shifted uh, you know well, I'm going to go sp- prove them wrong and you know compete my butt off and um, just always had a c- competitive nature about me and always you know enjoyed competing there's Utah quarterback Charlie
0: Brewer with the media and they've got their spring game on Saturday and I would expect it to be quite vanilla and several guys will be held out of it because you don't want them to get hurt and I think he would be right up there on that list All right, we're going to have some pro football later this hour. Thor Nystrom's going to join us, lead college football and NFL draft writer for NBC Sports Edge. You hear his take on the NFL draft. Quarterback heavy at the top. I think there's a couple of big stars at the top of the draft who aren't quarterbacks, and apparently they're going to slide because they're not quarterbacks. Man, that is going to be a big win for somebody who's in the top 10, but not in the top five, I think. We'll talk to him about that. Coming up next, though, Eric Walden jazz beat writer for the salt lake tribune stay with us
2: take the zone with you wherever you go let's go download the all new zone sports network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show
0: Good morning. It's DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. All right, it is time now to welcome in uh, Eric Walden, jazz writer for the Salt Lake Tribune. We had him on the show later in yesterday's show. Wanted to replay it for you. We're into the final quarter of the season here. And I think the standings, I expect the Jazz are going to be the one seed and the Suns are going to be the two. Um, Now, we've seen when it gets close, there can be a dumping of games down the stretch. And the Jazz tried to negotiate that last year. There was a thing with Denver and Portland a couple years ago. People trying to get to one side of the bracket or the other to avoid somebody. It looks to me like the Lakers are going to finish uh, in that 4-5 slot and be in that series, which makes them a second-round opponent for whoever is number 1. I'm not sure anyone's going to embrace that. But Phoenix has got a difficult schedule down the stretch. Not only do they play good teams, they play some good teams, but they play 12 of the last 16 on the road, and they still have a bunch of back-to-backs. I think the Jazz are going to end up being the the top seed. They've got a, a couple days off here, which I think is good. It'll be three days off for uh, the three guys who didn't play Tuesday night. Uh, and as we talked to Eric, because we had him on yesterday, he's going to reference last night's game. But he's talking about the Tuesday night win over Oklahoma City with Joe Ingles out and Royce O'Neill out and Jordan Clarkson out. A combination of rest and small injuries and you know, I think the combination is good. I think these two days are are good for the guys like Bogey and Donovan Mitchell and uh, and Rudy, who aren't getting time off because they get another back to back this weekend. Uh, Friday, Saturday, both afternoon games. Friday at home with the Pacers, and then Saturday at the Lakers. All right, so here's Eric Walden, his take on the uh, the stretch run in the playoffs on ninety seven five and twelve eighty the zone. Jazz are fifty five games deep in the season. My math skills tell me there's seventeen games left. They're into the final quarter of the season, and I'm curious as a B-Rider watches all the games, is on so many Zoom calls I can't even count. Is there anything you still need to know and learn about this team, or would it be okay with you if the playoffs started next week?
4: Oh, you know, I think honestly we kind of know about this team. Um, That said, like, ideally, you know, they do have 17 games to kind of you know hopefully figure out a few problem areas but i guess the question becomes: you know after they've played 55 do you think that 17 more are gonna you know be what it takes to kind of fix the transition defense issues you know um are those extra 17 games going to be enough to do something about you know the occasional ball stopping issues that we've seen that that you know the first 55 haven't taken care of um I guess theoretically it's possible, and that's the reason why you play 72 instead of 55 this year. But, um, you know, I I have a hard time believing that, like, we're going to see major shifts in those areas over this next little bit.
5: So 41-14, and obviously first in the West and all that stuff, first in the league, blah, blah, blah. Uh, But when you hear the knock on this team, well, there isn't a history As far as, you know, with uh, Anthony Davis and LeBron James, they've got a history of winning a title and all that. So, and Kawhi Leonard has done the same over there for the Clippers with other teams. What about their history, if anything, gives you cause for concern? Or do you think they've gotten past that? And this is about now, not about relying or base any opinion on history.
4: You know, I mean... For all the times we've heard that you know this, this team doesn't have an, a quote unquote elite guy, I think you know Donovan Mitchell is is on a sufficient tear you know prior to, to what he did in the Thunder game that we could probably kind of discount that you know he, he's he's going to be their main guy when the going gets tough when they need a basket. Um, now the question is you know people are inevitably going to ask. Can he pull it off at the same level that, you know, O'Bron James can or that uh, James Harden or Kevin Durant can? Um, And and these are valid questions, you know. I mean, the the nagging question with this team is, can they get it done in the playoffs? And, you know, the obvious answer is, well, until we see it, we don't know. But, um, you know, I'm liking what I'm seeing out of Bogey. We're starting to see him... Be a little bit more aggressive. Uh, We're starting to see him consistently kind of find alternate ways to score, even when his first two or three jump shots are not necessarily dropping. Um, They've got an abundance of options, which is a good thing. And you know, again, it's going to come down to: Would you rather have two megastars, or would you rather have four guys who are, you know, on that next tier or two down? And, I mean, this is what we're left with. The Jazz are not in a position to, to land those mega stars. And so we, we see them make do with this. And, um, you know, as for whether that's enough, I think, I think we're seeing Don take another step this year. Um, but, again, it's going to come down to can he do it in the playoffs when the pace slows when the refs swallow their whistles a little bit more, when the physicality ratchets up, um, you know, is, is he going to be able to pull it off in that in that kind of situation?
0: I'm struggling to come up with stars who have won it all. Duncan, Magic, are the two who come to mind who have won it all without having ever played in a conference final or an NBA final usually you have to get deep in the playoffs lose, learn from it, and come back. Shaq and Kobe had to lose a conference final to the Jazz before they won it all. Jordan lost a couple conference finals to the Pistons before he won it all. And you go on down the list, all these players, how much does it concern you that this team uh, has gone out in the first round the last two years and Mike Conley's been to a conference final, but I don't think anybody else has.
4: Yeah, you're right about that. Mike Conley is the only one on this roster who's made it that far, and there's a lot to that. You know, we we come from an era of of basketball where, yeah, uh, at first it was Larry Bird and and Isaiah Thomas had to lose to him a few times in order to make it with the Pistons, and then Michael Jordan and the Bulls had to lose to them a few times, and you know, there's a lot to there's a lot to it, right? Where going through those fires, going through kind of um, the test of it, you know, seeing what it takes on that next level to kind of elevate your game and and take that next step. There's something to it. Um, Now, you can argue that the Jazz having lost, you know, in the first round the last two years and the second round the year before that. They've gotten a little bit of a taste of it. I don't know that you know the the journey needs to necessarily inherently include a stop in the conference finals. You know, it it might be that this group, with having everyone healthy and everyone ready to go, having Boyan Bogdanovich back this year and on on another level, and if we can get Rudy performing consistently in the postseason, you know, maybe that's sufficient to make that leap, but uh, to your point, yeah, it hasn't happened a ton.
5: I think Jordan Clarkson was on the Cleveland Cavaliers finals team in
4: 2018. I forgot about J.C. with the Cavs, but um, I want to say that his role there was was fairly limited by the time they got to the finals, so he wasn't getting... A ton of minutes, but yeah, your your point is correct. No, he
5: wasn't. I'm looking at the uh, player summaries. He only played in two games, uh, so and had 12 minutes a game. But nevertheless, just just for the sake of accuracy, in my old newspaper days, Eric, I'm sure you could appreciate that.
4: I do. I appreciate you keeping <laughs> me on my toes and keeping <laughs> me honest, which you know are one of those I expect from you, if, if not necessarily the latter. So. <laughs> <laughs> always, always get to be pleasantly surprised.
5: <laughs> I'm thinking uh, we, if I'm looking for concerns, you know, you, you talked about individually Donovan Mitchell there, and you listed all the stuff, uh, refereeing and just the nature of the games and the playoffs, and it's all legitimate. And he does have to answer those questions, and the team has to answer the questions in the postseason because there is somewhat of a disbelief or an unbelief In This team as far as that they can do what they're doing now in the postseason and one of those things rather than focus individually is collectively is the three-point shooting because the pressure ramps up literally and mentally in the playoffs as we've seen that so how do you think the three-point shooting will be able to but the uh, succeed, I guess. How good will they be in terms of making three pointers? Because it's clear they're going to need to make them in the postseason.
4: Right. Yeah. And and what a what a time for that question. Given that you know we've seen the Jazz recently go through a stretch of you know eleven for forty four and twelve for forty two, and you know I think they had three or four games where they three and a half games probably we'll call it where. They really were just pretty pedestrian behind the arc. And some of that, you know, they attributed to changing defenses. You know, teams are becoming a little more committed to running them off the line and them running shots. Some of it, they just attributed it to, you know, a random variance where, you know, uh, it was inevitable that there was going to be some downturn in their efficacy from beyond the arc. And it just so happened that, you know, it was those games consecutively. But, um, You know, there's a reason that people say live by the three, die by the three, right? I mean, if not for missing 27 consecutive three-pointers in a a conference finals game, maybe we're looking at the Houston Rockets being NBA champions one year and and not having had to uh, detonate that entire franchise. So there's something to it, um, especially given that You know, we've seen Jordan Clarkson really kind of tail off in terms of three-point shooting recently. We've seen Bogey be up and down. Uh, DeHunnaband got up to 40% and then had a few rough games there. So it's it's a valid criticism. I guess the question is, you know, do they ultimately just trust what got them there and and figure that, um, you know, this is what they've been doing all year long? They're on pace set NBA record for threes attempted and threes made this year. So, for better or worse, this is their identity and and it's it's what they're rolling with.
0: Eric Walden joining us, Jazz B-Rider for the Salt Lake Tribune. So, there is a, a lot of emphasis on the standings, the race, get the top seed, and that all sounds good, home court advantage, especially when you get to play at elevation. Uh, but if the Lakers are sitting in that 4-5 uh, series and a potential second round or probable second round opponent? Do you really want the top seed? Do you think they'll tank <laughs> games to avoid it? Is it much ado about nothing because you either get out of the West or you don't, so you don't care what round? Where do you come down? And All, all those questions, you know them all. Go ahead.
4: Go! Yeah, a, a few of his b writers were actually kind of discussing this yesterday, you know, kind of trying to project how the, how the standings might work out and how the seedings might work and who might be seeing who in the second round and here's what it comes down to um they're going to be seeing a really good really tough team in the second round almost assuredly um so i don't know that it does you a ton of good to tank especially because uh with the play-in tournament as it is right now um (laughs) their chances of getting out of the first round uh, as they stand, are, are a lot better if they remain the number one seed, and you wind up with say uh, Memphis or or someone like that being your first round opponent, as opposed to you know Dallas or Portland um, if you if you drop down to the tours or, or three seed. So you know they could be playing the Lakers in the second round. They could be playing the Clippers in the second round. I suppose maybe it's a little advantageous now to face the Nuggets in the second round, perhaps with, with Jamal uh, Murray's horrible injury, but um, you know, I, I, I don't think they're going to be uh, actively tanking to avoid a matchup this year. You know, clearly that was something they did last year. Uh, feeling like he had the capacity to knock off Denver in the bubble and you know but for but for bogey being out and but for one last ditch mike conley shot rimming out uh they were going to this time around i think it probably makes more sense for them to simply uh try to get home court advantage all the way through the playoffs because this team is really really good at Vivin arena it, it makes a legitimate difference in how they play and i think Having as many games as they can, there is, is ultimately going to be the biggest factor for them.
5: You think they got something in Brantley, or no, or you don't know?
4: <laughs> that's that's another great question, right? Like, he was the guy who, out of their their trio of second round picks a year ago, if you had asked me at the time, who's the most likely to to stick? You know, I think most of us would have uh, predicted him. And, you know, since then, we've seen Mi Aone kind of be the guy, although last night that wasn't really the case. You know, Mie played seven minutes because Daryl Brantley was simply uh, better out on the court than he was in, in this particular matchup. I think there's something there. Uh, I, I don't think it's a ton yet. I think he still is pretty kind of wildly inconsistent and, and a little bit underdeveloped at this point, but... There's some intriguing skills for sure. I mean, you've got a guy who's who's six foot five and who's thick, you know, who's built, but who's got some some guard skills. He's got the ability to hit some threes, to put the ball on the floor, to grab some rebounds. There's something there. The the question is going to be, you know, is, does a team that's this good uh, have the ability to? giving minutes to a guy like that consistently. Uh, he probably more than anyone was was hurt by the fact that there were only a handful of G League games this year because uh, that really would have done him some good to play a full season with the Stars.
0: Eric Walden, Jazz writer for the Salt Lake Tribune, joining us. Uh, the Jazz have the, uh, the best record. Do you consider the healthy Lakers the best team, or have you got another favorite in the West?
4: Yeah, I mean LeBron and LeBron and Anthony Davis are are, are absolute game changers, um, you know. Which is not to say that they still have their flaws. Uh, I saw I saw someone post a stat on Twitter last night that out of the eleven thousand plus individual seasons that have been played by someone who's put up as many shot attempts as Wes Matthews, that uh, only about like fifty or so had a worse. Shooting percentage uh, in that time that than he did. So, turns out not everything they do turns to gold. You know, we've we've seen Dennis Schroeder have his ups and downs there. To the point now that you know uh, this this no doubt extension we thought he was going to get is up in the air. We've seen Montrez Harrell have some issues. Um, we've seen Mark Gasol have some issues. I mean, they had enough issues at the big man spot that but they felt compelled to go out and add Andre Drummond at the at the deadline, um, or rather on the buyout market post-trade deadline. But, you know, they're not a perfect team, but until somebody knocks those guys off, um, you have to consider them the favorites. I guess the question with, with them is, you know, can you count on Anthony Davis to be healthy consistently? You know, he's a guy who throughout his career – has been kind of consistently banged up, nicked up. He's always seemed to got something going on. Um, but then again, you know, if he can get it right for the playoffs and, and put it together for those sixteen games, they're awfully tough. So um, yeah, I think Phoenix have the experience. I think the Clippers probably, you know, while while Kawhi and uh, Paul George are incredible, they've got some deficiencies. So you know, as great as the Jazz have been and as likely as they are to finish with the one seed, uh, I, I think we have to say that, yeah, the Lakers are the postseason favorites if those two guys are back on the court and playing well.
5: And you just hope if the Jazz should get through these teams in the West that they don't face the Wizards
4: in the final, right? <laughs> yeah, so long as they can avoid the Washington Wizards in the NBA Finals, they've got a shot. Yeah. <laughs>
0: 20-33, 6-2 against the Big Dogs, Lakers, Clippers, Jazz, Nets. 14-31 and 31 against everybody else. The NBA makes no sense.
4: Yeah, there's, there's a lot to that this year. It's You know, I, I saw another stat that um, the Jazz had, like, kind of the lowest margin of winning of any first-place team in the league since um, – I forget who the previous team was, but it was um, the lowest margin of winning against fellow top teams of any team in, in about 20 or 30 years. So it's just it's just crazy all the way around. You know, who knows how it's going to turn out? Um, we're starting to see players say, hey, you know, did you Murray get hurt because we're playing this this truncated schedule because we're cramming all these games into such a short amount of time. Uh, we've seen it turn into load management in the extreme for some squads. We've seen it turn into, um, you know, that, that's that been one of the criticism of the Jazz's record. Yeah, they've won a lot of games, but a lot of them have been against, you know, uh, the Brooklyn Nets holding out Kevin Durant and James Harden and Kyrie Irving and all of that, you know, so, What it all means, I don't know, but, um, you know, I guess to that point, yeah, let's just cancel these remaining 17 regular season games and and get the playoffs started. We've seen all we need to, right?
0: Well, that just brought this segment full circle. Way to go. Well done. Good work, Eric.
4: This is why I'm the talented newspaper journalist that I am. (laughs)
0: All right, well, we will let you go. We appreciate a few minutes uh, and uh, look forward to uh, reading you when the Jazz get going again Friday and Saturday.
4: All right. We'll talk later, guys.
0: There's Eric Walden, B-writer for the Utah Jazz, working for the Salt Lake Tribune, covering the Jazz. All right. When we come back, Thor Nystrom, lead college football and NFL draft writer for NBC Sports Edge. His take on the quarterbacks at the top of the draft: how good are the Jets going to be? Are they going to put a team around the number two pick, especially since we assume the number two pick is Zach Wilson? Uh, We'll talk with him next. Stay with us. DJPK, it's 97.5 at 1280 the zone. We are joined now by Thor Nystrom. He writes for NBC Sports Edge, covers the NFL draft, lead college football writer. Thor, good morning.
6: How are you doing, gentlemen?
0: Doing well. As you know, Zach Wilson's climb up the draft board has been met here in Utah by uh, smiles and high fives from the BYU faithful and snorts of derision from Ute fans and Utah State fans. The rivalry's rage on here. And I'm curious because if he goes number two to the Jets like everyone seems to think he is, you know... They'll win. They'll lose. People will judge him. But the Jets have been uh, more a mess than not for a long period of time. And I'm curious if that is a franchise a quarterback should want to go to. Obviously, they've been shaking things up now with the leadership. How much faith do you have in the Jets going forward?
6: Um, that's yeah, That's a tough question historically to ask anyone. Um, probably not the most, just because of you know where they've been and whatnot. And and it, you know as, as far as the the decision with with Wilson fascinating right I mean like you had to pay a prohibitive cost to do that transition from from Sam Darnold to to Wilson right like you got a second round pick and a couple of ancillary picks later on ones but now you're going to be you know I mean th- they would have gotten an absolute bowl load for that second pick if they'd gone the other way so it, I mean it's a, it's a fascinating decision for me uh, there's a little bit too much risk in Wilson's profile for me personally to have been willing to pay that price but I certainly understand what you know where they're coming from uh you don't see players with with that kind of an arm coming into the league every year you know it's just it was lasers everywhere you know I mean the, the jump up he took I, I I would understand wanting to uh sort of stake the future of my franchise on that arm for sure
5: So it looks like the emphasis on quarterbacks has never been greater. And there's five guys. We talked about Wilson and Lawrence and Fields and Mac Jones and Trey Lance. So those five, at what pick in the first round
6: do you think we will get to and have all those five guys be gone? That's a really interesting question. So, you know, Chapter reported a couple weeks ago that there'd be four in the top seven. It seems like that's just about a lock right now. Um, I would say, you know, as as the board is presently constituted, you would almost think that nine would, would be the floor for the fifth one, right? Like, because whether it's Atlanta or Detroit, for the uh, fourth one or, you know, trade-up iteration, et cetera. Um, And then you have Denver, you know, at the ninth slot if they have not moved up. So I I would think that that would be where five would would go off the board. Um, But even, you know, outside of that, if if there's moves and stuff like that, worst-case scenario for any of those guys, I I just don't see how they would even drop – to the Patriots at 15, which is what you would usually think of as as sort of the floor for these guys, that that would be the absolute, absolute nightmare for for the fifth one. But um, right now, nine realistically might be the floor for the fifth one. So if
0: you already have your quarterback and you're drafting in the top nine and you see some of the players who are there – you must be drooling, thinking, we well, don't need a quarterback. Let these guys fight over the quarterbacks. We got our guy. And to add Pitts to your receiver core or to add Sewell to your offensive line, it seems like these other teams that aren't drafting quarterbacks aren't getting talked about. But it seems like if they don't trip over themselves or if they don't get crushed by injuries because that can wreck anybody's career in the NFL, they're, they're going to they're gonna do great. They're really going to make out in this draft.
6: Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, You know, starting with Atlanta, for instance, you know, like a a team that if they don't take a quarterback, you you just have Kyle Pitts, right? Like, I mean, it's who I would take. Um, But outside of Pitts, who is is a generational unicorn-type talent at his position, you have a couple other guys like that. Uh, For me, Penny Sewell is like that. He's the best offensive lineman that I've evaluated in the last five years. So I put him above. You know that I mean, like a priority player, right? In the in in the top ten, Jamar Chase is one of the best receivers we've had come out in the last couple years as well. And so, your your point is very well taken, where. Yes, this is a very good quarterback class. In, in the same way, and, and maybe even some inside the NFL would perceive it as a bit better than our last five quarterback first round. You know, the, the one with, with Mayfield and Allen and Rosen and, and Lamar Jackson, et cetera, and Darnold, I, I, I suppose. Um, it, this one is, is going to end up, in terms of draft equity, more investment in the five quarterbacks because, I, like I just said, I don't think the last one is falling to, to the 32nd slot like Lamar Jackson did. And the manifestation of that is these other three, four, five, you know, however many you want to put in that group of players at other positions that are not only the best players at their position this year, but if you put them into a bucket of the last three or four or five where they would also be at the, at the top of the class. And Sewell is one of the, for me, you know, and in, in Pitts for sure. If you put it the last decade in a bucket, um, they're either going to come out at the top or, or near it. And so, again, your point's very well taken. Where th- this this rat race to get up the board to take all these quarterbacks, the the natural offshoot of it is that it's going to push some of those guys maybe just a little bit lower uh, down the board. You know, whether they drop a slot or two lower, or whether it's you know four or five slots lower, there's going to be very good deals to be had for some of those teams that are not looking for quarterbacks in the top fifteen.
5: So we pretty much have Lawrence one, Wilson two. Uh, number three is the Niners, and obviously they've made some moves there. And we suspect a quarterback,
6: but we don't know which one. Which one do you think they would take? Yeah. So right now, I, I think with the tea leaves, you you would just have to go chalk with Mac Jones. Even though you know, for me, like when when that news came came out that the Niners were trading up and that all the rumors started with Mac Jones, my, my initial reaction was. I will believe that the 49ers take Mac Jones when, when when Roger Goodell states his name you know being right off of a card um, on, on that last Thursday night in uh, of this month but since then you know it, it wasn't just the initial smoke which is sort of mysterious as is you know just that uh, you know basically the quarterback that everyone agreed was fifth was this guy that that, that a team had traded Three first-round picks and a third-round pick to move into the third slot to take as, as the third quarterback. Um, but then the the reports that we saw after that it. it 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 has confirmed it even more because, you know, it wasn't just like, you know, for instance, Chris Sims, one of my colleagues, he he is a friend of of, of Kyle Shanahan and the Shanahan family, et cetera. He was one of the ones saying it like right away. Um, But then in the week after that, uh, in the weeks after that, um, Adam Schefter reported that the 49ers were going to take uh, Mac Jones. And then we saw um, uh, Peter King recently said, Uh, this is in his column on Monday, he said, that decision hasn't been made, but he would assume that the the, you know that right now the the pick is is mac jones and then in you know mock drafts around the industry from the respected sort of industry indicator guys like mel kuiper you know you're starting to see him slotted in there and then you know the the last piece of it is in terms of vegas odds mac jones before that trade occurred wasn't even in the stratosphere for the you know the, the the top guys in terms of favor to go with the third pick um it was up to minus like 225 for Mac Jones to be the third pick earlier this week, it's now like closing in on minus three fifty. So it's like it, it, he's certainly he's not in the odds range of like Trevor Lawrence is like minus you know fifty thousand to be the first pick, and and Zach Wilson at this point is like minus ten thousand. But he he's like certainly creeping up uh, that way in 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 terms of that. So it, it's something that. You know, that's what I think is is, is going to happen, barring a, a last-second change. We could get one, though. Uh, the 49ers are going to be at Justin Field's second-throwing session this week, and next week they're going to Trey Lance's second-throwing session. And, you know, maybe, wh- who knows? We'll, we will end up seeing, but it's like, you know, it's sort of like the, you know, the Bachelor show uh, on ABC when, like, during Fantasy Suite, week you have the last date with the bachelor and like that's like an important thing or whatever the, the last impression trey lance is going to get that um and so i i would almost think if it's not mac jones it, the the surprise or the audible would be to trey lance as opposed to justin field but this is all conjecture there's only two guys that know what's going to happen there and and shanahan and and john aren't telling anybody
0: Thor Nystrom joining us, League College Football and NFL draft writer for NBC Sports Edge. So let's flip it around for the quarterbacks and also for the guys like Pitts and Sewell, who are top 10 picks. You want to go higher because your money gets better, but you also want to go to an organization that's got a chance of winning. Now, the Niners are up high because they're coming off a bad year, but they were just in a Super Bowl, too, so the organization doesn't look so messed up. If you're a player, which teams do you want to go to and which organizations do you absolutely want to avoid?
6: I would say like in this class, if I was a top 10 pick, you know, especially like, you know, we were just talking about like, you know, the teams that don't need a quarterback and then some of these unicorn prospects, if I was one of them, the team that I would want to go to is the Dolphins because of how well they have set themselves up, mostly because of Laramie Tunsell. And honestly, you go back to Laramie Tunsell's stepfather, put, putting out the, the pictures, you know, the, the morning of the draft, or, you know, the, the night of his draft that pushed Tunsell down the board and to the Dolphins, and then allowed them to accrue all of these picks, first from the Texans, you know, in the, in the trade for him. And then, of course, in, in this trade, you know, the, the most recent one dropping from the third slot that had been the Texans, picking up the two future picks from the, the, the 49ers, they have the quarterback in two, I, I believe in him a little bit more than the, the fans do there. Let, let's get him some receivers and, and, and see how that pans out. Um, but it's not just him. Like They've already started to fortify that, that roster in a very real way. Numerous position. We, we saw how they, they improved this past season. Multiple first-round picks this year, multiple first-round picks next year, multiple first-round picks the year after that. Um, and and so that would be a team that, that I would look at because not only that you have the rookie quarterback under the rookie deal, as we know, that is your window. It, you know, it, it, you know, outside, barring having Tom Brady, you know, that then that just becomes your window. But outside of that, like, you know, teams are looking to hit on these these rookie quarterbacks because then for five years you get them at this cap, you know, price that is severely depressed against what it otherwise would be if, if they were on the free market. The, the the difference in those two figures, that's a real tangible thing that, that improves your roster. It's just money you can delineate to other positions. I think they're in a really good position going forward, the Dolphins.
5: Outside of Sewell, who else do you like in the Pac-12? will be your next prospect? Not necessarily the first round. I don't think there's going to be one. But is it somebody like Little from Stanford?
6: You know, Little Little concerns me a little bit. Um, you know, just, just in terms of the profile, having, having really not played for a couple of seasons. But he's fascinating, you know, j- just as, like, in, in terms of, like, uh, you know, sort of the biggest band between what he could become and – what his floor is, there's almost not a bigger band in the class than that Walker Little because he really could turn into a perennial all-pro. Has all the tools, has the athleticism, um, you know, I mean, like, and he knows what he's doing. You know, the, the technical acumen is the reason that he was like, you know, one of the top recruits in Stanford history. Um, But, but just because the injuries and having not played the, uh, you know, and, and when he initially played there, you know, he was a young kid and there was some issues with, with power and speed, but there always is when, when you're, you know, a freshman playing in, you know, the power five or whatever. So he, he's a really fascinating one for me. Um, As as far as the other, I'm I'm trying to think, um, you know, just in terms of PAC 12 prospects, who else I'd like, I, I haven't stacked my board yet. Um,
5: but yeah, J. Uh, J. of uh, USC, who's a local kid here, played his high school in Salt Lake.
6: Yeah. Yeah, another really interesting – and USC, you know, interestingly enough, like, um, you know, I, I, I've, I've sort of begged on Clay Helton. A lot of people have the, the the past few years. But, like, you start to look at now the guys coming into the draft, you know, which are actually classes that were manifested from Clay Helton, um, starting to get a lot better, right? Like, in, in this class, it's not just him. It's the kid he plays next to inside there. Um, they have a linebacker in the class. They have a couple defensive backs. Um, and the offensive fire – well, and, of course, they have Amonra St. Browns in this class too. Tyler Vaughn's way later down. probably won't get drafted. But then, you know, going forward, um, you know, Keaton Slovis and, and, and all the guys that they have on offense, like, you're just going to see them start to... Um, you know USC sort of have a, a resurgence there, but yeah, as, as far as the USC kids, like on on the interior, I like both of them. You know, I mean, like, and they they both do different things. Um, it, you know, as far as Tufa, he it was like I think he tested like as a sixty fifth percent size adjusted athlete, um, and. He, I actually thought he was going to test a little bit better, to be honest with you, because he moves very well. You know, in, in short quarters, like he, he's a hard kid for, for offensive linemen to sort of square up, get you know, get their hooks into. Um, he, he's a guy that could be very disruptive. He just needs to, you know, and you guys probably know, this, he just needs to play with a little bit more, you know, discipline, a little bit more under control. You know, mind his technique a little bit more as opposed to just like. I'm coming to you guys from Minneapolis. We we had a couple of defensive linemen that were sort of in this vein um, over over the years, uh, John Randall being the, the very, very best version of it. But we also had a, a guy named Chris Hovan, who was just sort of a wild guy uh, on the inside. And the better he got at his technique, the more it played up sort of his quirky movements. You know, because it, it's not just the, the ability to sort of like – you know, have I, I suppose in draft parlance, twitch in in short quarters. It's it's also that ability to uh, mentally and psychologically keep the the offensive lineman off of your movements by being unpredictable as well. And Holman was really good at that. That's something I see in Tufo. Um, and so, like you know, if, if if he can keep working on that, like I said, I I think it just would play up. Um, you know, sort of how he plays. In general, if there's just a little bit more technique, a little bit more discipline, I think he bounces up a little bit as a player.
0: So if you were drafting late in this draft, there's usually a game changer in the late first round who then, you know, does great. You got any favorites in there? Somebody who's going to slide late in the first round, which is still an excellent spot, but they go to a good team. They don't have the hype of the guys at the top of the draft, but they got better players around them and a chance to shine. You got somebody you're circling in that area of the draft that we should all watch?
6: As as you're explaining that, the name that that jumps to the front of my mind is Rashad Bateman. He, you know, the, the Minnesota receiver, actually from you know the, the city I'm coming to you guys from, but he he has been you know sort of nitpicked uh, throughout um, you know starting like last season and then into this season, and he was looked at as you know maybe not the best athlete. Um, and then last season he had to play the slot, which he was forced into after Tyler Johnson left the team. Bayman was one of the best outside receivers in, the, in college football in 2019. Last year he gets pigeonholed into this role that he wasn't comfortable with on short notice, you know, basically with the truncated offseason, et cetera. Um, and then Minnesota had all these other issues on offense, but Bayman acquitted himself fine. It's just that he wasn't in his, you know, his, his most ideal position, which is as an ex-receiver on the outside because what he's best at, it's his route running and his play strength. Is, is how he he always has separation, um, and then his ball skills are awesome, right? And so, like for me, he's a very polished guy who's immediately going to come in be a starting outside receiver, and I think he has very, very high um, a very, very high ceiling. Like you, you saw it in 2019 when 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 he was just a young kid, a, a true sophomore. Um, again, like statistically by any measure, uh, one of the nation's best outside receivers. He's going to drop to a team um, that that badly needs him. I, I think like. You know, whether it's Baltimore, and I think he would be a great fit with Lamar Jackson, certainly a much better fit than Hollywood Brown, you know, a a guy with a very small catch radius. That, that you're you're pairing with a guy who you know one of the great scramblers, of course, in, in NFL history, and has a very good arm. But t- sort of similar to Trey Lance in this class, the, the one issue, of course, with with uh, Jackson, it's just about placement and, and accuracy. You know, and, and of course, in his case, it, it wasn't disqualifying at all. Uh, but you know, in, in matching with Lamar Jackson's game, I want a guy with a bigger catch radius um, that you know can use his frame at the catch point. You know, if if, if he needs to go and get balls outside of his frame, etc., and that is always open in the intermediate area, and that, that's Rashad Bateman. He's going to catch all the balls downfield. You know, he, he turns 50-50 balls more into, like, 80-20 balls, and then, you know, downfield. And then in the intermediate area, like I said, just always open because of his footwork. Like, he's one of those guys, if you watch him, like, if you watch the defensive backs, he, he's the guy that always gets them, their feet crossed up, or he gets them. Um, my favorite thing watching his film was when he would uh, clown a guy so bad that they would actually have to do a pirouette. To, to catch back up to him, to, to gain them their momentum, so it, like he can get defensive backs doing all kinds of crazy Keystone top things, falling over themselves just because of his footwork. I, I think Bateman goes to a team, uh, you know, a veteran team like you mentioned that that um, you know doesn't have as many needs, but maybe one of their big needs is, is, is for a potential true number one receiver. And I think he helps that team immediately and is a is a long term uh, impact player. <laughs>
0: Well, it'll be intriguing to watch this play out. Thor, thanks for coming on and giving us a few minutes this morning. We appreciate it, gentlemen. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. There's Thor Nystrom, lead college football and NFL draft writer for NBC Sports Edge. And I gotta say, I don't because I watch the Utes, the Cougars, the Aggies, and then I try to watch you know the big games in the Mountain West and the Pac-12. I don't see a lot of SEC football, but I saw Florida enough and I saw Pitts enough, Kyle Pitts. Man, if he falls you, he shouldn't be falling. He looks so awesome. And if it's your favorite team that ends up with him, you ought to be pumped. And if you play fantasy football, grab him. All right, DJ and PK, it's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. What is trending? Coming up next.